0: We are continuing our sermon series on restoring honor to the kingdom. And last week we covered the house of God, restoring honor to the house of God. And this week we will advance our topic and move on to restoring honor to worship. Because if you don't have honor for worship, then you're not worshiping. And then we'll, next week we'll endeavor to look at restoring honor to your presentation. How do you present Yourself before God. That one is going to really draw some fire because Americans love carnal unless they're going to the clubs. Americans love casual unless they're giving their daughter away at a wedding. Americans love casual uh, unless they have to appear before a politician or a judge or receive an award. And then they want to dress up in honor. So I'm just trying to figure out how preachers think we can dishonor God and honor everything else in life above him. So we'll address that next week because I want to take a whole service to do it. But we're going to talk about restoring honor to worship. As I have the last two or three sermons, I've written out my whole sermon, which is the only time I've ever done this in my 14 years of full-time ministry. Uh, It's different, but I, I decided also there's so many different ways to preach and minister. I might as well get good at all of them. I can preach shooting from the hip with no notes. I can preach with two scriptures. I can preach with curriculum, and I preach from PowerPoint, got pretty good at that. So now we're working on preaching from a sermon script, and that helps me stay focused on this because this thing, this topic is too easy to get sidetracked on rabbit trails because dishonor has so many different flavors today, Uh, much like pride does. I wonder if the two might be related. When you dishonor God, it's only because of pride, ignorance, or arrogance. And even if you're ignorant, it's no excuse. So we've previously laid the foundation on the need to restore honor within the hearts of Christians to the kingdom of God. We're not worried about pagans. They're of their father, the devil. But they could probably teach us more than we understand. We're not concerned with the heathen's heart. He's cursed and is in need of a savior. And the Lord will meet him anywhere in the highway, in the byway, in the hedges, in the bar, in the brothel. God will meet him intercept him on his way to arrest and persecute believers. God will meet the heathen everywhere. But when we come to meet with God, he meets with us differently. It's different. And that's what we need to keep in mind. When we, the believers and the followers of God Almighty, meet with God, it's different and we have no right to make it common. We don't expect the heathen to honor God or our God's kingdom. The heathen is a foreign national. We don't expect him to respect what we have. Just like we don't expect maybe the foreigner to understand the star-spangled banner or to get emotional when our church has just received home a new Marine. We don't expect an African to be emotional about that or a Hispanic unless they're an American. They don't get the honor that's wrapped up in that. We don't get it. We don't care if the heathen don't get our kingdom. They're a foreign national. If they get converted, they'll begin to learn how to honor our kingdom. The pagan has his own king and his own kingdom. The problem we're dealing with in these sermons is the newly developed disdain and disrespect for God's kingdom coming from the hearts of his own people, and we need to make sure that that is not our heart, that if if the Spirit of God is upon us in these services to learn honor, then your heart says, Lord, oh God, teach me honor. May I honor your church, your kingdom, your Bible, your leaders, your tithe, your offering, your, your prayer. May I learn to honor it greater than anything else in life. This problem has arisen due to the popular trends of seeker friendlyism, also called sinner friendlyism, uh, also called purpose driven, I should say drivelism, <laughs> coupled together with the cowardice of easy believism and the hireling's aversion to offending people. I think preachers need to be taught if you're going to serve God, you're going to offend people. It's part of it. Lord Jesus wasn't bothered when his disciples said, Lord, you offended the Pharisees. Carest thou not that you have offended the Pharisees? And the Lord looked at him and said, every tree that my father hasn't planted, he will uproot and destroy, which kind of tells you what the fruit of offense demonstrates in the hearts of a man. If you live in constant habitual offense, you may not be planted by God. So you're risking being uprooted and destroyed. Hirelings have an aversion to offending people to which I say I'd rather offend a deacon than my God. I'd rather offend the Jezebel than my God. As we've stated in the previous sermons, this blight entered the American church when prominent pastors sat at the feet of secular atheistic marketing gurus rather than at the feet of holy fathers and mothers of the faith. Why would the church ever seek out the world's wisdom to build a supernatural kingdom? Because they were compromised from the beginning. The church has been taught to give the world what the world wants and hopes that they'll come to our church and serve a God they don't want. That's the seeker friendly model. That's the seeker friendly model. And anybody that's participated in that owes Jesus Christ an apology and their church repentance. I cannot imagine building our church on polling our community and asking them, why don't you want God? and then they give me their carnal, sensual, petty advice, and then that's the foundation stone of how I build a church. Can you imagine? Can you imagine asking the pagan why they aren't interested in church and then giving them what they want and making that the crux of your ministry's mission statement? We don't follow the inmates. We don't follow the lunatics. We are the wardens. We are the the doctors. They listen to us. We remediate them. We fix them. We habilitate them. Jesus Christ never asked any of his disciples, oh, oh, I, I offended you guys. What could I do to get you to come back? What could I do? How could I adjust this message? He taught on communion in John 6, and all of his disciples left him except for 12. And he never stopped and issued in a public apology on Facebook. He never took the next mountaintop sermon to say, if you guys hear of anybody I offended talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, please tell them, I sincerely apologize. I spoke out of misunderstanding, without any cultural understanding, and I need them to come back, because my ego is so petty. He looked at the 12 and said, "You guys going to leave too?" And Peter was the only one smart enough to say, "Where will we go?" <laughs> you alone have the words of eternal life. All right, let's rebuild. We didn't compromise all at once. That would be too obvious. We've spent 35 years. Actually, if you go back to the church growth movement of the 50s, we go back 70 years to when we began to compromise the gospel standard, all in the name of numbers. Now, this falls into the American spirit. The the, the famous statement I've made to you before by a Christian theologian was that when Rome got the gospel, they made a government out of it. When the Greeks got the gospel... They made a culture out of it. When the, excuse you, they, they made a philosophy out of it. The Romans made a government. Greeks made a philosophy. When the Europeans got the gospel, they made a culture out of it. And when the Americans got the gospel, we marketed it. Because that's what we do. We market. We're market-driven. We haven't compromised all at once. That would have been too noticeable, and even the congregations would have rejected it. We have been taught to implement dishonor one little line of defense at a time. So coming back now to the good old classic kerplunk. Hopefully we've all played this game. and We understand that you pull out these, these little sticks here. And as you pull them, you increase the risk of dropping your marbles into the bottom. And that's how you lose, by getting too many marbles. And we said that in our little example here, the marbles represent sin, compromise, demons, darkness. And down here, we're yet pure. And we didn't compromise all at once. These straws in our little example here represent the doctrines of Christ, the, the standard of honor and holiness, because they do work as a buttress against darkness. And we looked at the verses last week in Leviticus and Ezekiel that says God's preachers, his priests, his ministers, they are to make a distinction between holy and profane, between clean and unclean. The preachers are supposed to have it. Then they're supposed to teach the people what it is. So they all work together to keep perversion out of the kingdom. But what does the devil want? He wants perversion in the local house. Because when there's perversion in the house, there's no delivering, cleansing power. And when there's no delivering, cleansing power, churches are ineffective and pointless. And the devil would love a pointless body of believers who are deceived and thinking they're doing God a service. So we did not compromise all at once. And to be sure, we can pull many straws out and still be safe. So I made a list. Is there anything wrong with coffee at church? Not necessarily, but then again, we're Americans. We can't even spell moderation, much less practice it. (laughs) I grew up Southern Baptist. We had the fellowship hall and Wednesday night pre-service dinners. It was part of fellowship. It was done respectful, with honor. I grew up on those things, and then we went to RAs, and we learned about missions, and we we learned about the things of God in a boy setting. They did it right. There was no confusion between what is the fellowship hall and what is the sanctuary? Yeah. Is there anything wrong with contemporary music in church? No. Not, not a contemporary style. There's no such thing as an evil note or an evil instrument. Uh, maybe that soprano sax that one Kenny G plays. That's pretty demonic in my opinion. In fact, that whole Duotones album is pretty demonic in my opinion. Huh. There's no such thing as a wicked... Note, you can't get into chords and tones and and modes that are demonic, unresolved chords, diminishing chords. Those get pretty demonic. They're just hopeless feeling, and you don't want to write music in that, though some of our modern charismatics have. Is there anything wrong with stage lighting? Ah, Not necessarily, but then again, we're Americans. You can't just do better lighting. We're always pushing it like a five-year-old. Can I touch that? No. What about that? No, I can touch this. Is there anything wrong with wearing expensive, nice jeans? Not necessarily, but then again, we're Americans. Anything wrong with dressing down every once in a while? No. Our prayer services, our corporate prayer, our Friday night once a month prayer is very casual. I lead prayer in slacks and maybe a vest, maybe a button-up, sometimes tennis shoes. It's our most anointed service but those clothes aren't a reflection of my heart. I understand clothes aren't holy, unless they're holy clothes because you, you know, <laughs> either are poor or spend too much money on clothes that were made with holes in them. It feels like early 85 all over again, waiting for the big hair to come back in, and that's where we will draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with jeans, but when you have better when you have better and you're going to go meet with God you give God better wear those jeans to see your politician give your daughter away at her wedding in those jeans I'll deal with this next week but it bugs me that preachers will preach in skinny jeans and a little muffin top t-shirt you know Converse Chuck Taylors and you say are you going to give your daughter away like that at the wedding no 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 that's a special occasion what, well, church isn't? Well, you know, man. You know. Well, wait a minute. So, you know, it's, it's I'm giving her away as a bride to her groom. Well, doesn't the bride meet with the groom every Sunday morning? So I'm okay if you preach in Chuck Taylor skinny jeans and a little muffin top T-shirt as long as you give your daughter away in the same thing and show your daughter equal honor to God and not reverse it. Don't honor your kid more than your God. That's the curse of Samuel Saul. Excuse me, Eli in 1 Samuel. We don't do that. Is there anything wrong with incorporating multimedia in our services? No, no, no. But then again, we're Americans, and we can't just stop with a little advertisement for the next men's conference. we got to do other things. Is there anything wrong with maybe um, doing a live mixed concert video on the Jumbotrons? You know, if you want to drop $150,000 on cameras and production software just to kind of give the congregation something to spectate instead of lift their hands in worship. Yeah. I guess if that's what you want to do. Is there anything wrong with um, always giving an encouraging message? Is there anything wrong with a funny, encouraging message? I don't suppose. Not one or two, you know. But at some point, the things that aren't really here nor there start to add up. Is there anything wrong with streaming your services? No, we're streaming right now. But, you know, if that's all you do and you make it available, you'll eventually lead people into a lazy, deceived Christianity. Is there anything wrong with uh, coming in early or late and leaving early? Not every once in a while, but if you get into a habit of it, you know. It just really becomes uh, we start pulling straws. And a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. Before long, we really have nothing holding back darkness because everything will be taken to the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step 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 because that's how flesh operates. And as preachers, I'll I'll speak for preachers, we feel the pressure of your pathetic opinion. We feel it. We feel your little nagging, your little, yeah, we're not immune to that. We feel it. We have to walk with Christ so that we don't let your pathetic opinion that's ruining your life rub off on us so we, we, we give it to everybody else. I mean, you're miserable. We feel your misery. We want to try to be happy. We want to try to make you happy. But if we're not careful, we'll let your misery get on us and then we'll disseminate it and make everybody else twofold more the child of misery than you. So that's why I say, honestly, if you're not faithful to church, if you don't tithe, if you're not clean and holy, I don't really care what you think because it isn't helping anybody. So keep it to yourself. God's brought you here so you can come to big boy, big, big, grow up in big girl church and big boy church. Leviticus 12, uh, 20, 24 says this I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. Leviticus 24, 20. And I know the Old Testament pretty good. I know the New Testament better, and I understand the arguments about, well, that's old and done away with. Well, then just go murder somebody, see how that feels. If you've been, that's old and done away with. I would also like to point out, I know the law has been fulfilled in Christ, but the moral law hasn't. The civil law hasn't necessarily, and not all the ceremonial law hasn't, because part of the ceremonial law includes praise and worship. Have we been delivered from praise and worship? But you see in Leviticus 2420, point B, uh, second part of the verse, he says, I'm the Lord your God, and I have called and made you separate from all other people. The problem is if we start getting into this little thing, well, there's really nothing wrong with wearing jeans. There's really nothing wrong with uh, coming casual. There's nothing wrong with contemporary worship. And again, I don't care about the style. Then before long, uh, there's really nothing left to distinguish a church service from the world's coffee bar service comedy jam hour. And a lot of your popular churches right now, when you go to them, they're nothing but a coffee bar comedy jam hour. There's no distinction. It's almost like they're doing the world. Occasionally they'll quote a scripture, throw a verse on the jumbotron. But is that really any different than one of our pagans receiving an Academy Award and in the midst of all that debauchery saying, and I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the Lord gets the one shout out in the midst of your Sunday morning, one hour guaranteed sermon. Or message or service. We have issues. Corinthians says, come out from among them and touch not the unclean and I'll be your God. So what if you don't come out? I think according to Paul and Corinthians there, the way we make him our God is by coming out from among them. If you don't ever come out from among them, he's not really your God. He might be your savior. You might've gotten saved once, but we need to make a distinction between being saved and having a God. My kids are saved. They don't really know what it is to have a God yet. They grow into that. And I'd say there's a lot of folks saved, even tongue-talking, spirit-filled. It doesn't mean they have a God yet. But if we come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing, God says, then he'll receive us. We'll be to him a God. He'll be to us a God, and we'll be to him his people. But what if we don't come out? What if everything between us and them stays the same? When you have God as your God, there's a distinction in how you do everything you do. There ought to be a huge distinction in your marriage, distinction in your dress, a distinction in your money, not even quantity, just how you handle it. Distinction in your health, distinction in your mental health. There ought to be a distinction because God is your God. This is enticing because the numbers game, this, this compromise a little bit at a time, it's enticing because the numbers game is very seductive. But this invites the spirit of the world into our churches, which will push the spirit of God out. Many many churches have lost the Spirit of God and don't know what to do. They don't know how to get them back. The result is horrific. When you lose the Spirit of God, the only way to get them back is to honor Him and worship Him. But by then, you've conditioned everybody to be dishonorable and lax. And now, to raise your people up to the standard that brings God back causes you to lose the numbers you were worshiping. The result of a church that just slowly pulls one doctrinal straw, one one standard at a time. The result becomes a bloated church. A bloated, carnal, dishonorable, weak, selfish, ragtag Cub Scout troop called the American church. No longer can we call ourselves the soldiers of the cross. Nope, we are the new military full of obese, opinionated, insecure, pierced, tatted, carnal, sensual, uh, biblical illiterates. That's the new church. I hammer obesity because we have a fruit called self-control. In my humble opinion, there's no difference between obesity and a porn addiction. Except One can be hidden. I think among preachers, they're both disqualifying offenses. Quiet. You guys thought you were going to be okay because you think you're so honorable. Both porn and obesity are lack of self-control. Both violate scripture. Both will destroy your life. Both are sinful. Both bring disdain to the body of Christ. Neither one of them is worthy of replicating throughout the rest of the body. Would you want everybody to have the porn addiction you do? What if every Christian was as porn addicted as you? What would that do to the strength of the body? What if every Christian was as obese as you? What would that do to the strength of the body? Would we even be able to put missionaries on airplanes to get them overseas? The body of Christ would be bought, brought to a halt. So, I know we don't want to hurt people's feelings, and I know I'm going to be called a fat shamer for this. Well, can't we call them a porn? Can't we shame porn addicts? Shame is a good tool. Now, our country's allergic to it because we're just supposed to accept everything and call it beautiful, especially if it's consensual. But obesity is not good, pornography is not good. Shame is a powerful biblical tool. Paul said it many times I speak this to your shame. Because if you really feel biblical shame, you'll make a change. Amen. The American church looks nothing like what I'm sure the Apostle Paul had in mind when he told Timothy Endure hardness like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But hey, at least our churches are bigger than his. Yeah, man, Paul didn't know what he's talking about. He died almost alone, nobody with him. We got 10,000. I got 45 satellite campuses and 89 states and six territories. Look at me. I am, and there's none like my mega ministry. The preachers are the drill instructors of the body of Christ. We are the fathers of the faith, we're the shepherds of the flock, we're the leaders of the congregation. Where we lead, the sheep follow. Every church reflects their pastor's doctrine, discipline, ethics, hunger, leadership, holiness, and walk with God. If the congregations lack honor for the kingdom, the pastors are to blame. We steer the flock. Their health is based upon what we feed them. If the congregation is sloppy, dishonorable, and carnal, guess what? So is the preacher. You can't help, even if you're resistant, you can't help but take on the personality of your shepherd. It's just how it works. You take on the the personality of your company and your boss. You take on the personality and the, the aroma of the military branch you serve in or the police, whether it's police or sheriff's department. There's different vibes, and you'll take it on. I once heard a pastor teach on honor, and they boldly said, I don't expect a guest minister to teach my church how to honor me any more than I expect the neighbor to teach my kids how to honor me. No, they said, I taught my kids to honor me, and I'll be the one to teach you to honor church and God and his house and his people. If, they said, if I don't teach honor, there won't be any honor. But honor requires sacrifice because honor is not about you. It's about assigning a value to someone not you that you're worthy to pay, or you, just, you deem as worthy to pay. You can self honor, but it means nothing. So I'm here to teach us again how to restore honor to the kingdom of God. And last week we covered honoring the house of God, which we could spend weeks on, but I don't want to spend weeks on this whole sermon series, much less one topic. And remember, we we talked about churches used to be laid out like the tabernacle, even in our nation, even in this city, outer court. That's the connex where people would meet, the annex. Then the inner court, the sanctuary, where the people of God could come closer to God. And then the altar or the holy of holies. Outer court, inner court, holy of holies. Now today we have the food court, the spectator court, and the stage. Just like the theater at Dollywood. Get yourself a big old turkey leg. Get you a little nice, comfy stadium seating and watch the bluegrass jamboree. So today we're going to look at honoring worship or bringing honor back to worship. Sadly, God's people are good at defiling worship, always have been. (laughs) The first four commandments of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, are all about worshiping God. I'm not sure how we can say we're delivered from that. Really, it is the moron hyper grace heretic who will tell you we're delivered from the Ten Commandments because if you were to teach your kids half of them you'd have some good kids don't lie don't murder Johnny don't murder that's bad don't commit adultery with the neighbor's kids that's bad don't worship demons Johnny I don't know how in the world the American church and all of our big fancy wigs could teach us we're not under the Ten Commandments murder somebody and see how that goes for your ministry Sleep with their wife or their husband. See how that goes for you. Just embezzle, steal, covet. See how that goes for you. Worship an idol. See see what demon you get. it It shows the gross ignorance and the lack of the Spirit of God upon ministers who will teach us. We're free from the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue. The Ten Commandments written with the finger of God upon tables of stone. The first four are all about worshiping God. Have no other gods before me. First commandment. Have no graven image. Make no graven image. That's the second commandment. Thou shalt take the, uh, not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's the third commandment. That's claiming yourself to be a Christian when you don't live like one. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you live like one. And number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. There's one day a week you honor and venerate as sacred unto God. We still do it Sunday. Uh, one late news article said, uh, I believe it was in the Atlantic or maybe New York Times, of course, it says, Why we need to do away with the seven day week. Why would you do away with it? Because God instituted it. They don't mean it yet. They just want to get those thoughts out there. Communists already tried that, didn't do anything. What's old is new again. Because our kids learn TikTok and not real history, they learn reconstructed history. The rest of the Bible hashes out these four laws concerning worship and fills in the gap because mankind, driven by his sin nature, always finds a loophole in laws. We should begin with a simple lesson on all the activities God sees as worship. Part of dishonor may be rooted in ignorance. And if you don't know, God recognizes something as sacred. You may treat it as unholy. Here are the things the Bible considers worship. We'll only get to three of them today. Number one, of course, is music. We're all familiar with music, so we have to make sure we keep music in the house of God, holy, sacred, and honorable. This is where the biggest area where the modern church is failing miserably. Praise and worship. Boy, have we profaned this area. We can no longer distinguish between secular concerts and Sunday morning worship service. You can't tell anymore. If you were to take a camera and videotape it, and upload it to YouTube, they wouldn't know if you were at a secular concert or your coffee bar church, because it looks the same. And all that means is that the church is following the world. And the pastors are following the world, trying to be cool and accepted. And that's okay if you're 13 in middle school. Chasing the world to be cool and accepted is totally cool if you're 13 and 14 and 15 without parents who love you. But at some point, you grow up, oh preacher, and you say, I'm not interested in the world liking me. Jesus Christ said, if they like me, I'm in trouble. He said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. So when your worship set looks like the world, we know who you're following because it ain't Jesus Christ. There ought to be a distinction between everything we do and everything they do. And if there isn't, then we don't have a God called Jesus. Tithes and offerings is a second area of worship. We worship God with our giving. This must be done in a sacred fashion, not flippantly or secularly. Number three is prayer. The house of God shall be called a house of prayer. How many churches have regular prayer services? If those that do, in those that do, how well attended are they? The last one, which we'll get to next week, is presentation. You present yourself a living sacrifice. That's worship. How do you present yourself in life? Is there any distinction between how you cure yourself and how the TikTok star does or the Instagram or the secular humanist? Is there any distinction? How do we present ourselves before God, especially in his house? Are our, bodies, our bodies are a living sacrifice, and this is called a reasonable service. We shouldn't come to church looking like we just came from Lowe's. These are the four main types of worship for those that claim to be followers of the Almighty God. The reverential practice of each of these must be taught. If they're not taught, the heart for them will be lost. And if we lose the heart, it becomes a religious action. And if it's a religious action, there'll be no anointing. If each of these is done distastefully, dishonorably, or not at all, God will be grieved and His presence will depart. So first and foremost, music. This is what we're the most familiar with. Uh, We're familiar with singing as a way to worship God, and this is critical. Lucifer is believed to have been heaven's first worship leader. He understands music and its powerful ability to affect atmosphere and spirit. Music stirs the spirit realm, and you should know this by now. Psalm 22 informs us that God inhabits the praises of his people, and this is critical to the mechanics of praise and worship. If we know God inhabits the praises of his people, then we must make sure that what we do with music is praiseworthy. We must make sure it's pointed towards God. As we sing and praise him, his spirit manifests in our midst. But even Psalm 22, it automatically infers a certain formula. If God inhabits the praises of his people, then our music or our praise must have lyrics that magnify God. Not weird Britney Spears love songs to Jesus. It also means that our praise must be done with humility and through holiness. It means that our melodies, the melodies of the music, must be those that compel the heart to magnify God. There is no such thing as a singular evil note, but you can certainly arrange them in very demonic fashion. Many of our top musicians will testify, even in magazine interviews, that I have a voice that comes and visits me and gives me the music. They give me my lyrics. They give me my rhythms. They give me my chord progressions. That's a demon. So try to take that demonic-inspired riff, put some Christian lyrics on it, do it in the house of God, see if the, if the Holy Ghost is deceived. He won't be. You'll just wonder, why doesn't that song work? Why doesn't that song work? Because there's nothing inspired of God on the thing. The fourth thing Psalm 22 also infers is that in times or settings, uh, we, we worship God in times and in settings that are venerated as hallowed before God. You could stop in the middle of Walmart and begin to worship him, and you might lift your spirits. But if you were to come to the altar of God and sing the same song, the presence of God would fall stronger. You couldn't go to an ACDC concert in the middle of it, sing How Great Thou Art, and expect God to do anything. Nor could you probably do it in the professor's lecture hall. And I don't encourage you to try. We could all sit there and go, no, that ain't going to work. But in the middle of the day, three in the afternoon, come here to the altar by yourself, sing How Great Thou Art, watch the anointing of God that abides in this house and doesn't just visit. Watch it swell at your simple worship. If we short circuit any of these lyrics, humility, melodies, times and settings, we risk grieving the Spirit of God assuming He ever manifested there in the first place. What what if our song service tweaks the proven recipe? What if our song service uses lyrics that are about us and always whining? Have you noticed, I've made the point, how many songs we sing about breaking chains? Every song's about breaking chains. Maybe because it rhymes with Let It Rain and Crimson Stain and I'm in So Much Pain and I Need a Thesaurus (laughs) because these other lyrics are boring us. I think we're singing all these songs about chains because the American church is bound. Keep singing, but get free and shut up eventually. How about victory is mine? Victory is mine. Victory today is mine. According to the word, I have what I heard. Victory today is mine. Chains be broken. We've been singing that for 20 years. Are we ever going to get free? Even the inmate eventually files through his chains. <laughs> makes a run for it. What about if the songs are sung by disinterested, dirty people or led by dirty people? divas pot smokers fornicators practicing the art of tattooing I'm not against tattoos you don't go get any more tattoos are inspired of demons there's no such thing as a Christian tattoo and if you're currently tattooing you are fellowshipping with the familiar spirit I don't care if you are a preacher my standards are a little higher than the average guy so if any of our folks started getting tattoos I'd just sit them down I'm done with you. Repent. Amen. Let's get that spirit off of you because it is a spirit. Amen. Amen. Can you imagine Billy Graham getting a tattoo and saying it was God? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul in the earth today at the tat shop saying, God inspired this. But we have morons on Christian television telling us the same thing. What if we sing worship songs with melodies borrowed from the world? What if we sing it in settings Intentionally copying the world's entertainment. What if we tweaked any of those four necessary ingredients? What's the result going to be? When the music sounds like the world, and the singers look like the world, and the setting is patterned after the world, those coming to the worship service will be given a worldly experience. What are the odds that God will endorse this setting with his presence? What if one enters the congregation seeking God, or more accurately, desiring deliverance from darkness? from the nightclub the night before, and he finds an identical setting, same mood, same lighting, same look, same vibe. Will he find deliverance or disappointment? It is possible to produce such a carnal atmosphere in our churches that it is though any gospel actually preached from the pulpit will encounter a deactivating fog of carnality previously produced upon the people. You cannot feed people's carnality the first 30 minutes of your service and believe they'll be prepared to receive anything spiritual the last 30 minutes of your 1-hour service guaranteed yeah. yes the gospel is the power of god unto salvation but it still falls upon wayside ground it can still be hid from those whom the god of the carnal worship service has blinded paul even requested prayer that the gospel might have free course and that it be not hindered we can hinder the gospel And the carnal worship service is just the tool to hinder the gospel. The gospel is preached to all, but is only heard and received by the meek. Carnal worship hinders the preaching of God's word. That's why we're very strict on it around here. The fact that carnal MTV unplugged worship is now the norm and not the exception reveals to me that the patterns who endorse it, uh, the pastors who endorse it, are ignorant of unto how, unto how the spirit realm works. So I will tell you how it works. Go to Psalm 100. Psalm 100, famous psalm. Only five verses. Only formula necessary. Five verses. You know what's, why it's that simple? Because we're that stupid. Thank God it isn't Psalm 119. Huh. <laughs> Several points here. How many points have I got out of this psalm? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen points in five verses. Number one, make a joyful noise. That under, undermines a whole lot of carnal worship. Joyful noise in the Hebrew says shouts of praise. Make a joyful noise under the Lord. Not, not mousy, mealy mouth, timid, religious squeaks. Joyful noise. Serve the Lord with Gladness. That means get your attitude right. Gladness. Joy and gladness. That all of a sudden undoes most of Jesus' culture. The whiny, mopey, tattooing, druggy, cutting worship of the last 20 years. That if you were to turn the music on right now, I'd quench the spirit in this service. I thought about pulling up one of their videos, not to pick on them, but to demonstrate When you preach the word and you produce a pure anointing and then you kick that thing on, you realize the Pied Piper lured you into a familiar spirit and rubbed the name of Jesus on it. Did I hurt your favorite worship team? It's time to come up a little higher. Does that offend you? You you want me to lie to you and say, yeah, they're great, listen to them, so you can get their weirdness on you? No. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence, moping and whining and belly aching with singing. Uh, The Hebrew says triumphant and joyful singing, not whiny, selfish music. Know ye that that the Lord, he is God. That instantly says we're not in charge. You come to church and you're singing and glad and you know that he is the Lord, not us. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are here for him, not for us. It is he that has made us. We're here for him. We're here for him. We're here for him. We are his people. This is a reminder that we belong to him, not the world. He has to say, remember, you're mine. You're mine. We are his people. And the sheep of his pasture, uh, sheep follow their shepherd, not the world. This is a psalm telling us how to worship God and not forget so we don't mess it up later. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving adjusts every attitude. It adjusts every attitude. Instead of bellyaching about being so blessed in your middle-class white America cornucopia of plenty, thank God for what you do have, that you are married, that you have a nice house, that you have health, that you're not weird, alone, living under a bridge, sick, depressed, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving allows us to begin to enter into his presence. Uh, Religion doesn't want you thankful. Religion wants you bellyaching all the time. And if you can come to church, just thankful. I made it here one more service. I got out of my bed this morning, got in my car this morning, made it across my town today, walked on my own legs and made it into my church. I don't know what you're bellyaching about. I'm telling you, we should have some slap prayer lines sometimes. <laughs> How many of you are just feeling so sad, so depressed, just so, oh, that's me. You just really, I mean, the world's against you. You just knock, oh, that's me. All right, come down here and just line you up and just. <laughs> throw those pictures of persecuted Christians up on the overhead where ISIS cut the heads off a Coptic Ethiopian serving Jesus, where children are starving because their families are Christians and are unemployed. Yeah, let me take you a little white middle-class American and just slap you into some common sense. Because I look at you, you're all going through something. I don't feel sorry for none of you. None of you. I feel sorry for nothing you're going through because most of it you made yourself. How am I going to feel sorry for that? I'd lay hands on you, but it wouldn't do you any good because you won't fix you. You thought we were picking on the Seeker Friendly Church. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we're pretty equal around here. You want some woke equity? I got it for you. I'll give you your woke equity. We're all cursed and going to hell without Jesus Christ. Just because you speak in tongues doesn't mean make your heart right with God. Man. Thanksgiving gets us into his presence, into his courts with praise. Praise, uh, the, Greek call, the Hebrew calls it adoration, Towards God, it brings us closer still. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. It's a second mention of thankfulness. Blessing Him in the, in the Hebrew means we kneel before Him. We're kneeling. For the Lord is good. It's a declaration of His nature. His mercy is everlasting. It's another declaration of His nature. His truth endures to all generations. That's the third declaration of His nature. That's the pattern for worship. I don't see moping, belly aching, whining. I don't see any curling up at the feet of Jesus and nuzzling in his beard like a bunch of weird worship songs. Just want to nuzzle in your beard, sit at your feet, drink from the cup in your hand. What cup? That's weird. Give me scripture for that. Drink from the cup in your hand. What? You said rivers of living water. Give me a good Holy Ghost song about rivers of living water. None of this weird mopey. I just got stoned last night, slept with my girlfriend, and got inspired to write this song, Junk. Bring on the purple lights. Simply preaching, the five-verse psalm has increased the presence of God in our heart and our life, just to understand it. The song leaders and musicians must know God. In David's day, they came from the tribe of Levite. Nobody else was allowed to be the singer. They were special. He didn't just put talent up there. It was their calling and consecration. They had been taught by the holy Levites before them how to sing and worship God on his terms. They didn't get it off of watching YouTube videos or the next Hillsong album, Young and Bound. (laughs) They did not pattern themselves after the world. We never win the world as long as we insist on chasing them. The singers wore white linen. That's what the Bible says. They were clothed in white linen robes that distinguished their role in the kingdom and in the worship service. They were responsible for helping David bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, back among the people. That's how David used the singers. You help me get the power of God back in the church. In Solomon's day, the singers were unified with musicians. There was no strife or typical musician ego. They were the singers and the musicians were as one. And their unity allowed the glory of God to fall in that majestic temple. Without the power of God, it was just a hollow temple. Today's singers must likewise be holy, clean, and knowledgeable of the Bible, almost as well as the pastor. Assuming the pastor knows the Bible and doesn't download his sermon off the internet every Saturday night. Unfortunately, this is not the reputation for today's typical worship leader. They are not known for being holy, clean, or knowledgeable of the scriptures. (laughs) When singers and musicians play, what's in them comes out in their music. Even the secular musician gets it. What's in you comes out of your horn. What's in you comes out of your drums. What's in you comes out of your vocals. What's in you comes out of you. If you're lazy, it comes out in your music. If you're prideful, it comes out of your music. If you're religious, it comes out of your uh, your music. If you're a full of excuses, it'll come out of your music. Their private soul contributes to the aroma of their worship. The aroma of a church's worship should be free from pride, fornication, tattooing, lust, drugs, laziness, strife, greed, showmanship. In the days of Jehoshaphat, when Judah was faced with an enemy army, the prophet, excuse me, the Jehoshaphat's direction was to let the worship team go into battle first. And they won. But I ask you, would the stereotypical modern worship team of today have what it takes to go before Jehoshaphat's battle with their tattoos on their forearms so when they lift their hand all the young kids can learn how to tattoo of, you know, doves and crosses and scriptures and words in Greek, I am my beloved and he is mine. Hebrew, Aramaic, you know, all those kitschy little... It works better when it's written on your heart, sweetie, if you didn't know that. And now our modern worship leaders look a lot like Steve Tyler from Aerosmith with their wristbands and their feathers and their handkerchiefs hanging off everything. I mean, my God, are you a gypsy or a worship leader? I want to dance like Steve Tyler so bad and walk this way with the Run-DMC version. It's the only reason I knew who Aerosmith was in the 80s because Run-DMC did a song with them, and I was a Run-DMC guy back in the day still maybe a little. <laughs> huh. Would the worship team of today have what it takes to go up against the enemies of Israel? Or would, would they have the anointing of God upon them strong enough to rout the enemy? Or will we see a wasteland of torn skinny jeans, hipster hats, and wristbands? I mean, nothing wrong with wristbands and hipster hats, but eventually you just look like the world. Would they be hacked to pieces so small that we could only identify them by dental records and bits of tattoo skin? You know it's the truth. You know it's the condition of the American church. And as a missionary, what disgusts me is we export this as God. When the third world churches realize, y'all have lost your mind. We begin church with praise and worship that we might forget about ourselves and focus on him. As we praise and magnify him with honorable songs and with a hunger in our heart, his presence falls. This takes a little bit of time because not everyone joins in at once. This is also why churches that know what they're doing will sing their songs together, allowing for a spiritual momentum to build. Churches that stop and start their songs, standing and sitting constantly, break up spiritual momentum, which usually results in the congregation never fully entering into the presence of God for that service. The presence descends as our worship ascends. It is God receiving our worship as a sacrifice. His presence softens hearts and prepares those present to receive the word of God. The anointing of God increases the word's impact on those in attendance. It's why it's so critical. God is glorified as his people are helped and changed and convicted. And we had a part to play in it by worshiping God with humility and honor. Amen. Amen. You cannot feed people's carnality with the carnal music set led by carnal musicians the first 30 minutes of your service and believe they'll be prepared to receive anything spiritual the last 30 minutes of your one-hour service. Won't happen. And so we must learn to honor worship again. That's why we have strict standards on my worship team. I've told them we're not having a fat worship team anymore. fruit of the spirit called self-control there's a church in Birmingham that makes their, uh, their their staff is kept on a weight limit and they make them run everywhere and when you do a discipleship program with them you run everywhere because they want to make soldiers modern problems require modern solutions obesity is a modern problem and look just because you're skinny don't get in pride your heart can be just as fat with stupid and pride, and unthankfulness. Some of you sitting smirking because you're all skinny. Yeah, fatty. I nailed you in Sunday school. You're just happy I'm not pointing at you right now the way you hate your husband. Wish you'd married somebody better. Yeah, you. Don't get with me this morning. I'm just... Teaching and preparing these sermons has me so hot because my God is mocked in the name of seeker friendlyism. And then we who dress up, we think we're better than them and we're not because we come here and our suit and tie is a facade masking our broken, dysfunctional, emotionally wrecked heart. So which would God rather have, you in a suit and tie with a mess in your soul or just come humble before him? Just, Lord, help me. I think we know the answer. Ties and offerings. Offerings are worship because they take something from us and they present it to God in order to honor and please him. From the very first offering of Cain and Abel, offerings and tithes have never been about the worshiper but about God. God is a self-existent one. He needs nothing from us. He did not need Abel's sheep or Cain's harvest. He wanted their hearts. They both gathered their best offerings. Hebrews 11 calls their offerings excellent, but faith made Abel's more excellent. They came and presented them to God. Their offerings cost them something. It was inconvenient and hard work. There wasn't 17 multi-site campuses, one for your convenience. They went out to somewhere, probably the edge of their development, someplace where they could meet with God and they took their stuff and left it out there. They must have done it together since Cain could observe that God respected his brother's offering by simultaneously rejecting his own. But we see in the first offering, sacrifice, Inconvenience and God's right to reject or accept and our need to try again if he rejects what we bring him. If he's not happy, we do it over. If we really want to please him, we don't stop till he's pleased. Noah's offering is the second offering in the Bible. He built an altar of burnt offerings and he dedicated it as a place to worship God. He sacrificed clean animals on a burnt altar because you give God the very best, clean. He sacrificed animals... As a burnt offering, they symbolize a renewed dedication to God as all burnt offerings do. It was inconvenient, it was hard work, but God received this offering as a sweet-smelling savor. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is the third offering of the Bible, the most expensive one so far in the Bible because it was going to cost him his son. It was an inconvenient three-day journey just to go make the offering. and Now we just click to give. Don't forget text to tithe. It was an inconvenient three-day journey to the place of worship because there was no satellite campus in those days. Abraham called it worship in Genesis 22.5. It was expensive. It was heart-wrenching. It stretched his faith. It burdened his marriage because after that sacrifice, you never see Abraham and Sarah living together till she dies. The implication is she was so angry at her husband for this, she separated herself and died alone. That so Moses did 400 years later, separated from Zipporah over keeping covenant with God. If you, try to, if you try to make peace with a wretched woman and to please her, you'll never succeed. Concerning the arrangements of God. Now, obviously, husbands care for your wives. But if she has a problem with God, You don't bend away from God to help that wretched woman. She's wretched because she doesn't walk with God. Abraham wouldn't bend. Moses wouldn't bend. They both lost wives. And they just kept on serving God. Isaac kept on serving God. Moses kept on serving God. And then Joshua, he just kept on. We don't slow down to serve a backslidden woman who wants to control us and keep us from dancing before our Lord with all of our zeal. Let her be like Michael if she has to be and be barren the rest of her life because she mocks the David who wants to dance before his Lord. Quit worshiping your ego, Missy. This sacrifice, this offering was counted unto Abraham for righteousness. The law of Moses further regulates tithes and offerings that Israel would learn to hallow the practice in their hearts. In Leviticus 27, God called the tithe his and he called it holy. He warned Joshua, if you keep anything holy, it will curse you. Achan did that very thing. He kept the tithe, he embezzled it, and cursed his whole home. Deuteronomy 26.10 confirms that worship is part of presenting the offering to the Lord. That's why we do it in this church. We bring our offerings to the Lord. We worship with it. Even on Wednesday nights, we worship with our offering. We've done what we can to make it different, to honor it, because otherwise it's just money. A piece of paper made out of cotton or paper or, or fiber putting to a plastic or a different container. There's nothing spiritual about it. We have to do what we can to honor it to make it different. Though tithing is debated among some Christians, no one denies that Christians should be generous in giving their offerings. But shouldn't that be done with more decorum than a simple don't forget to click to give or simply text to tithe? I hate this for this simple reason. It has been promoted to me to get more money out of you. Pastor Chris, do you guys do digital giving? No. Don't you know that if you set up a text account with Venmo or whatever, you'll get more people, money out of your people? I wanna say, your money perish with you. And if you were in my face, I might judo throw you because I could control how hard you hit the ground and I'd have mercy on you at the very last. But don't you dare talk to me about how to get more money out of my people. It's disgusting, but that's how it's marketed to pastors. All these apps, this is how you get... We, we, actually, I got one email, I think. 10 or 15% guarantee more money out of your congregation. I used to get advertisements for this stuff. That makes me want to just draw back on it even more and say, nope, no, no, pastor, I can't be there. Then you better save it up and bring it when you can. Because I'm not opening up the door to this is how you get more money out of your people. Make it easy for them. What is... What is so hard about writing a check? What is so hard about going to the ATM? I know that's so hard. I mean, I was like, you got to reach your arm out the window. It might be rainy five feet over there, but, and it might be cold for a minute if you want to give cash. What's so hard about that? Now we do PayPal because we have to do transactions with missionaries around the world. But really, we're just cheapening everything. I mean, really? Is it wrong to PayPal? No. But if we just keep making everything cheap, there'll be absolutely nothing left distinguishing us from the world system. And that's the way the world wants it. The click to give has been marketed to churches as a way to get more money out of your congregation. Those that bit at the sales point reveal a certain level of ignorance concerning the kingdom's economy. I do not deny that we're headed to a cashless society it is getting there quickly. But I've told you for years, if we ever get to a place where cash is gone and everything is cryptocurrency and we've got chips in our hands or just on our phones or our wristbands, we're still going to be up here with e-readers or whatever they use. We'll have an usher, a holy man of God, if he's got to scan your hand or let me help some of you that do PayPal offerings. And I'm not against that. Know that you're, you and I are both taking a 2 or 3% hit on what you give. So you're not giving your tithe. You're giving 97% of your tithe. But if that's what you still choose to do because PayPal deserves their cut, I'm not against that, but just realize you're not tithing fully, then at least come to the altar, stand before the basket, and with your heart you say, Lord, in your phone, this is my tithe. I present it to you. Receive it now, Lord, as an offering, a sweet-smelling savor, In Jesus' name. That way you make it holy. We're going to all end up going there anyway. But we have to do everything we can to keep things sacred. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't bring fruits and vegetables. We're not shedding blood. We're cutting checks. We're writing numbers on envelopes that are credit card accounts. But we can still make this thing as holy as possible. Amen. We do not want to cheapen this transaction with God like it's Walmart and Mountain Dew. Number three, prayer. Last section. Prayer is our third form of worship we want to talk about this morning. Praise and worship. Prayerlessness is sin. You don't pray. By omission, you are in sin. You've got to be a Christian, a person of prayer. Hebrews 13.5 says this. uh, But... By Jesus, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. One of the seven or eight types of prayer of the New Testament is thanksgiving. You can pray and give thanks, and giving of thanks is prayer. So just by the sacrifice of our lips, the fruit of our lips, giving praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, that's prayer. But we need to be very reverential in our prayer. Uh, Unfortunately, as word of faith... I would say, recovering word of faith, people. We got to where our faith confession was just cheap and hollow. We didn't actually have prayer times anymore. We just believe we receive. We believe we receive. I'm not healed. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sick. I, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm healed. It's not like a retarded parrot. <laughs> no walk with God. No prayer time. I, I believe I receive. I don't know, that won't come my way in Jesus' name. No real time in prayer. No hour in the morning. No 30 minutes at night. No, no lunch break where you spent 20 minutes seeking God. No, nope. I just believe I receive. I believe I receive. We cheapened it because of lazy, carnal flesh and religion. So we as Christians have to have a prayer life. We have prayer closets. We have attitudes of prayer, and we want to make sure that it's honorable, that if you lay down and pray, you're going to fall asleep there. Maybe stand up, walk around. God may deal with you differently. I remember hearing a woman preach, tell the story of when she was a single woman, she was dating some men, very tastefully, I suppose. And uh, she'd get all dolled up, as ladies do. We're not against that. The barn needs painting. Paint it. Um, It's hypocritical to say the barn doesn't need painting, and then you bedazzle your beehive and your denim. That's hypocritical. You can't bedazzle your face, but you'll bedazzle your nine yards of denim and get into pride over your beehive. Amen. Beehive don't make you holy. It'll make you honey. So she was uh, she was getting dolled up for this man she was dating, and she was a fervent woman of prayer. And uh, she said one morning she went to prayer at 5 or 5 30 in the morning to spend time with God, and the Lord dealt with her and said, You always get so pretty for George, but you always come to see me with rollers in your hair. And she said, I was under gross conviction because I had cheapened my time with God. I'd put more importance on George and not my God. So she said, Lord, I forgive me, I repent. And She began to get up earlier so she could get herself fixed up just as nice for her God as she did her George. I'm thankful I'm not a woman and have to have rollers in my hair. I think he's just happy I get out of bed sometimes and spend time with him. You got to work with what you got. But one of the things Jesus Christ said about his house is that it should be called a house of prayer known among all nations. One translation, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke quote the same passage in Isaiah Mark's I think it's Marx, uh, shall be known of all nations as a house of prayer or a house of prayer for all peoples. But that tells us the reputation of the local church should be as a house of prayer. But I ask you, how many churches do we know of that are known as houses of prayer? We don't know of any. That's not the reputation of the modern church. The reputation of the modern church is hipster entertainment. Laser shows and grungy worship. That's the reputation. They're not even known for their outreach. They're not known for their missions. They're known for the kitschy coffee, their own coffee blends, their cool logos, their Instagram accounts and presents, their cool hats, their cool wristbands, their cool swag, the celebrities they have in their sanctuaries or, or their entertainment centers, but they're not known as spiritual. And they're definitely not known as houses of prayer. Mark 11:17 quotes Isaiah 56. And the Lord says, it says he taught them, saying of them, Is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. We must get back to where we, when we pray, we come ready. When we pray, we come loud. When we pray, we come honorable. When we pray, we come ready to seek our God. We must find honor again for prayer. Maybe it just means starting prayer groups in churches. I'm not worried about us in this arena. We do currently have 14 prayer meetings a week. Three at 5:30 in the morning, three at noon, one on Monday night, and then the other six nights of the week we have prayer. Then we have three pre-service prayers and then corporate prayer. We have a lot of prayer around here. Some of you have never been to your care deacon prayer. Shame on you. What's your problem? I'll wait trying to get honor back in the house of God. It's called an answer to prayer, not an answer to want. Not an answer to misery. Not an answer to whining. Not an answer to lazy. An answer to prayer. The house of God should be held in reputation as a house of prayer. This informs us that the local church should have regular prayer services and that the people should be taught to come and pray there. Yes, we can pray at home and in the car, but even after Pentecost, The tongue-talking apostles who prayed on a rooftop still went to the temple to pray again. David prayed among the lambs and the sheep and then went to the holy hill. uh, Samuel tells us he went up on top of the Mount of Olives to worship God. And he worshipped at Shiloh, and he worshipped in the wilderness. But there's still something about praying in the house of God, if for no other reason but to inconvenience you and your little schedule. Sadly, most churches today have little to no prayer outside of their regular worship services. They pray in a service and that's it. And to me, that's the equivalent of a Christian only praying at home before their meals. Churches must hope or help their sanctuaries to regular prayer services. They must open them again that the saints of God might learn to pray again. We can honor prayer by even doing it. And if you didn't know, sitting there quiet, That's not prayer. There's a time to be still in the presence of God. And listen, I get it. But the word prayer means oration. It's spoken. So prayer services should be loud. Remember that first church service on Pentecost, the rooftop, it was so loud, the whole town came a running. In most prayer services today, nobody even knows what's happening. Are they asleep in there? They're seeking God in their dreams. No, no. There's a cry of faith that is verbalized. You can't pray in your mind. You can think in your mind. You pray with your mouth. It's not with your mouth. It's not prayer. We can debate this all day long. I'll run circles around you. Prayer is spoken. We speak to mountains. We speak to demons. We speak to storms. We bring into captivity thoughts. So you show me any scripture that says thoughts accomplish anything. All right. Imagine if the American church could regain honor for praise and worship, for tithes and offerings, and for prayer. Would not the presence of God return with tremendous power? And this is because our God will honor those that honor Him. And he will despise those that despise him. So let us, as we lean our heart into this stuff in the coming weeks and months, honor God with praise and worship. We do that to the best of our ability around here. We're trying to get better. Let's honor God with the tithe and the offering. It's why we do it the way we do it. When you've never done it, it's weird to come down front and present it to you, but it's biblical. Let us learn to honor God in prayer. That means show up for one and then participate for two. And if we can't hear you, you're probably not participating. We are a loud praying church. You should take upon you that attitude as well. Amen. Amen. One of the things my job is to do as a pastor is to get you good at hosting a Bible study and leading prayer. Because you're all called to make disciples and you're all called to move God through prayer. If you come to this church and all you do is learn information, I have failed you. You need to ask God to give you a disciple you need to ask God to give you people to have a Bible study with and then you host them and, and not anybody from the church, by the way. We're so well taught around here, we can't even get through the door, our head's so puffy. You need to go find a co-worker, a roommate, a neighbor, a workout buddy and host a Bible study for them. And then you ought to all be comfortable leading prayer because we might just start randomly calling upon people to lead pre-service prayer. I mean, he's your God too, right? There's no special office of prayer warrior, no matter what the charismatics taught us. We all talk to our God. Maybe we'll start doing that in the new year. Maybe we'll have a church half this size come the new year. Yeah, if you're here, pre-service prayer, shop, I'm like, hey, here's the microphone. Go lead us. Really? Yeah. You're faithful? What do I do? Talk to God. About what? Church. You get 15 minutes. Go. And only half of it can be tongues. You can't be cheating that way now. (laughs) Amen.